Welcome to Shorts Season 2. I'm Jen Thomas. I live in London, UK. And I'm Lizzie Falconer, and I'm in Portland, Oregon. We are two long-distance friends who want to talk about what we're reading. This podcast is about how reading short stories can show the world through different perspectives. Today we're reading How to Marry an African President by Erica Sugo Anyadike, which is available to read on adastories.org. It was shortlisted for both the 2019 Commonwealth Short Story Prize and the Queen Mary Wasafiri Writing Prize. In 2020, it was shortlisted for the AKO Kane Prize for African Writing. We've linked the story in the show notes and on our website at shortsthepodcast.com. How to Marry an African President is a story told in the second person about the relationship between a secretary and the president of an unnamed African country. Through this structure, the author explores the strengths and limits of the character's womanhood in her rise to power and shines a light on the corrupt, dangerous side of this fictionalized political landscape. So what did you think? Well, Jen, I am a sucker for second person narratives, I have to say. Um, one of one of the classics and the favorites that came to mind when I read this story by Anya DK was Laurie Moore's How to Be the Other Woman, uh, which is one of my favorite pieces. And I think it allows so much access into the internal dialogue and thought process and pain of a narrator. But in this story, also how calculating and clever our narrator is. From the beginning, I just thought, this woman is smart, she's funny, and a little bit ruthless. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm much less familiar with this as a structure and the form of the second person. And I think I loved I loved the use of that structure um, to create such a direct relationship with the with the reader and with the audience. Like I felt like I really was really getting to know this character, which I think is also what you're saying. It's like you really get a sense of who she is. But the the thing I loved about it is it's really funny. Like it's a really funny story. Like there was a point where I'm, I laughed out loud. You know, we take notes before we do the podcast and I've just got a whole section of bits that made me laugh. <laughs> Just, I just pulled out quotes where I was like, this is a great line. Like, it's a really sharply written story. Um, and given the context that she's writing about, she's made it really accessible, really visceral, and really very humorous. Yeah. I mean, from the beginning, we start off, the title's so good, How to Marry an African President. Okay, I'm in. Yeah, I want to know. Um, and... The first sentence, when you are interviewed for BBC documentaries in your palace, they will want to know how you met. Cast your eyes downward and tell them you were a shy and hardworking secretary in the state house typing pool. Omit to mention that you were already married. Lie that you were divorced and not looking, not even for a president. I just, you get it. There she is. You're picturing this woman like in her opulent palace uh, giving documentary or giving interviews to the BBC and just the the way that she's presenting herself you understand that she is always presenting herself to be slightly different than she is yeah and I love that sort of um that push and pull always between 
how she lets us know like what we should be doing and it just shows that she's kind of constantly on she's constantly performing she's constantly kind of on display she's constantly putting a version of herself out there but because as you say it's kind of you're we're being presented with like a guidebook like this is a this is an owner's manual for for for, for what to do so you understand like this struggle between you know you'll be feeling this way but cast your eyes downward this is a lie you'll need to tell it's so good yeah she's always making herself seem like a little bit coy she's always listening to the right things but ignoring some of the other things she doesn't want to hear or you know I just she's a she's a genius and the first page or two all she's talking about is what the president looks like and and she's and she understands that she is being observed, but she's also observing everyone around her. She talks about this president who is much older than her and who starts by just spending a little bit too much time around her. She has the line, pay attention to his shoes. They will tell you everything. I love the bit about his shoes. <laughs> like Her observations of him are so so interesting but that section about the shoes just after that um she says be sure to comment on his shoes remember we all crave approval so it's like finding this finding these ways into kind of building that connection and understanding that the fact that he's worn these burgundy shoes and she's kind of taken the time and the pains to notice it means that she that will give her the upper hand and it's so it's just it's so kind of cleverly woven the way that she uses that observation and then puts you in the position of observing it as well because it's all done through this you um, kind of narrative in that perspective. She's playing this man like a fiddle and I am here for it. Um, (laughs) I just, it's so, you know, imagine the power he has over her as the president of this country and she she notices all these tiny signs he's putting out. And it makes me think about this idea, like pay attention to his shoes. They'll tell you everything. Something that I think whenever you're starting to date someone new and there's, you know, I think you've said this before, Jen, you're, Jen, you're desperately looking for context. You're trying to understand who this new person is that's coming to your life and what are the clues in how they dress and what they say in their home that will tell you more about them. And she's very good at it. She's very good at it because not only is she noticing it so that she can build a picture of who this guy is, but she then uses it that sort of becomes part of her weaponry and her armory for like how she's going to get this person to kind of notice her and how she's going to flatter them because she's doing this kind of meticulous observation. Mm-hmm. Um of of him yeah it, yeah you're right like this is the other thing I've I've noted down and there's more and more examples but like it's the universality of this story so even though this is a very specific context she's a young woman she's a secretary she's in touch with this kind of yeah this incredibly powerful much older man um we're in a different country um but I recognize parts of this experience <laughs> Like, notice mm-hmm. his shoes, comment on his shoes. We all crave approval. Like that, yeah, those see- seeking clues about this other person, like trying to kind of win them over, um, thinking about what they are thinking about you all the time when you're kind of <laughs> feeling each other out. It's really, it feels like she could be describing 
the beginnings of of lots of relationships. But this is kind of like an extreme version. It's like an extreme turbocharged narrative of of what it is like to to kind of first start to explore whether you might want to date someone. Yeah, and exactly it, the universality, but yet so specific because we have her who she's already married and the president is also married and there's a huge age gap, but we, we, their affair starts up anyway. And you see her navigate like literally how to be a good girl, more or less. Um, she says, uh, he will offer you a drink that appears almost magically from a console overlaid with a gra- with the grains of an exotic wood, a burnished red brown with dark streets so opulent it's almost oppressive. Decline because good girls don't drink. Only later do they pretend to have acquired a reluctant palate for wine, courtesy of their husband's influence. Notice I did underline a reluctant palate for wine and said, <laughs> like Jen and me. <laughs> Yeah, we're very reluctant. Reluctant. Um, yeah, reluctant um, drinkers of delicious pale rosé. <laughs> if there are any vineyards listening, we are interested in sponsorship. <laughs> we um, love smoked salmon and rosé. Uh, but it's just, you know, she's literally, you can just imagine her again being coy, like, no, 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 I don't drink. And then only later after she's been with him for a while and he's officially her husband, she's like, oh, I guess I'll indulge just a little. This, the this whole story and especially the beginning part of it is peppered with these examples, though, of where she's like putting forward this version of herself and this version of of what a woman needs to be in order to kind of lure him in. I mean, she is an absolute mastermind manipulator. She is, it's extraordinary what she can do and and how she can manipulate this person. So Mm -hmm. like, because sort of similarly, when she talks about, um, she's talking to him about her relationship with her husband. And she says later, drop hints about how you and your husband don't make love anymore. Say, even women have needs. Giggle nervously, cover your mouth with your hand and apologize for being inappropriate. See his eyes brighten. Ooh. I mean, Ooh. she's there. She's just there saying, oh no, I don't drink. Oh, we don't have sex, but I'd love to. Like, this, just like <laughs> who, is, who is this woman? Like how the projection of kind of, I know what this older man will want to see in a young girl like me. And I can use that to my advantage to, to pull this guy in. Yes. So ballsy. I mean, it's just so fucking ballsy. She's like like in her twenties. She's a young secretary. She is one of a number of secretaries. She says like the other secretaries are noticing that she's starting to kind of build this relationship and she's just like I'm gonna go for it I know how to do this I have literally I'm literally writing the book on how to do it and I'm doing it now and you just I love I love her confidence and her and and how strong she is in kind of going after what she wants but it's terrifying yeah it is terrifying and I think what I notice, what I start to notice a little later in the story is how he's also manipulating her, you know, the power and the wealth and the money of that position. He, while he is, you know, while I feel both sides are complicit in this because she 
talks about being in that car with him, with the Mercedes, with the wine. And she says, see the watch on his wrist out of the corner of your eye, gold bezel, crocodile leather strap, struggle to breathe. Do not panic. Money sometimes makes the air feel heavier for those who do not have it. And you start to feel that there's the gap of the power and the money and what would it mean for her to be able to ascend these political heights? He knows what he's doing, bringing her into his Mercedes, you know, wine and dining her there. The power dynamics there do not, do not go away. And I think it's interesting. It is interesting. And actually like some of the power also, you know, like the, the choices that she makes because in order to kind of be as available as she can for this for this man also are oh they're quite like it's quite so difficult true. there's that section where she says that she stops um going to school um so she says as she stops attending night school and give up on your degree because uh being a consort requires being available at all times um like all powerful men presidents have options you must maximize your time so there's a sort of you know that power dynamic like she talks about him in this way of like power and presidential you know she you don't you don't she doesn't have a name for him you know it's the president it's this african president she's a secretary like those roles are very set and she isn't able to do anything other than make herself into this version of womanhood that he will want and desire and that becomes everything she's able to do so she can't Mm -hmm. kind of continue to pursue her education Mm -hmm. yeah no I think that that's absolutely exactly astute is that it's still a trap right she is molding herself into what this man will need, but it, it limits her in other ways, but it also provides great opportunity. I, I wonder, Jen, what you thought later on that page, she talks about the first time that she and the president make love. And it seems like Anya DK perfectly really chooses to bring in the British aspect here. So it's like, there, you know, the first time you and the president make love, he will take you to an old colonial hotel with paint peeling like tears, as if mourning for its former glory. And there's high tea, there's cucumber sandwiches. She talks about the English hotelier, ruddy from the heat and frequent gin and tonics. His skin will be pink and thin, translucent like a lizard, which felt like a personal attack yeah. <laughs> as the palest human being on planet Earth. Um, <laughs> I was like, on you. I wrote, is it me? Um, Question mark. (laughs) Uh, It's, and there's like, you won't hear much, just something like, you don't have to lie back and think of England with this one. I just wonder, like, what you thought about her choice there to bring in this colonial history into this moment that before, into the story that before was really about the power dynamics between a secretary and a president. But now we have it complicated by these aspects of the British colonies. And this is where he's taking her to show like their first time making love. I don't know. I just, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and actually it goes all the way through the story because even that first line that you read before, it specifically says 
about um, when you're being interviewed for a BBC documentary. So there is, and there's there's a moment later where she talks about kind of it's like a British royal wedding. Um, That's right. Yeah. Married. So it's 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 really complicated. I mean, obviously. Um, you know, we understand from this kind of for the first time that we're in a former British um, colony. Because on the one hand, I thought that this, the way that she described the hotel and it's kind of the idea of this sort of former glory, it felt like it was also like slightly this man, like this outdated institutional power that is now sort of failing and frail and thin-skinned and elderly and no longer kind of relevant. Um, so my initial thought was that that was a kind of, that was was part of the, the angle of it, um, which I think kind of starts to come out when she describes, when, there's, when they go and have sex and that she's describing his body, which we'll come, I'm sure we will come to. Um, but the other side of it, I think, is also, you know, he, he, if he's been in power for a, a while, there's something about his relationship to this sort of former um, uh, Britishness as being part of also his power. So that idea that like he's an African president, it's there in the title. The British Commonwealth um, colonial time is past. And he, here he is as a symbol of, like, strength in, in and amongst that. Like, his strength surrounded and kind of in the place of this now very faded Britishness. So I felt, I, I, I couldn't sort of grapple between those two things because they feel contradictory. But I think that the choice of it, A, places us somewhere kind of very strongly in terms of history and, and geography. But it also really pulls apart this sense of like, on the one hand, his power, and on the other hand, his sort of failing frailty. You know, to me, I thought what was interesting was when I was researching this story, um, it, it drew comparisons to Grace Mugabe, who was the former first lady of Zimbabwe, because she was uh, married and um, 19 and a secretary when she met former president Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe. And when they got married, you know, he was also married as well. Um, then his wife died and he married Grace um, very soon after that. And when they got married, she was 31. And Robert Mugabe was 72 years old and they were, Sorry, I, I, I'm looking at myself on the zoom screen and my eyes just went so wide. <laughs> Can you? 31 and 70, 72, mm -hmm. 72. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Zimbabwe press press uh, called their wedding, the wedding of the century. So grace, I think, and we'll talk about this more throughout the story, but I think understanding what the influence or like this is a story that could be based on something that happened in real life is really interesting and also helps you you know visualize this sex scene that of course we're going to talk about 
in a kind of worse way, you know? <laughs> Are you, as in, we need to think about Robert Mugabe? No, I, I just... <laughs> talking about the sex Sorry, thing, you're right, you're right. Something I don't want to do. I, yeah, um, but just the age no, difference. I, you know, yeah. under, like when you're imagining uh, like that much, you know, 40 years of difference, there's, there's whole, there's generations between the two people. There's experience and understanding that's just very different. I mean, I just feel like walking into that experience, two people are going to have very different expectations. And she talks about that. You know, she says that, she says that when he finally takes you to bed, be prepared. Older women have gone before you, have navigated men like intrepid explorers, braving unfamiliar terrain, have mapped out the ego of a man. They will warn you to strike a fine balance between Mary and Magdalene. And I think that, you know, we talk, we've talked about this in other stories, but that fine balance that she has to play for this much older man of, I could be your wife. I'm not just a a consort. I, I have the class to be your wife, but I also have the sexiness, the spice. What is it to keep you interested? I, it's really interesting. It is. And I, I, yeah, I love that kind of, um, parallel between that, that story of, um, Grace Mugabe and the story that we're reading, because I do think it adds a lot of, um, it adds a lot to think that this has happened or a very similar story has happened. And, uh, you know, it also lets us know, I think more about the, potential threat of this man so the power that this man has that we were talking about earlier when you see that wielded in somebody like Mugabe who is who took power and kept power in Zimbabwe for decades and clung onto it like vice-like grip Mm -hmm. (laughs) and how terrified people were of him I mean he's got very complex um legacy he's left a very complex legacy on on Zimbabwe and on the on the political landscape there and then you think in the context of the story you know this voice of this woman who's trying to kind of you know she's there and you think oh she's manipulative she's using her power she's wielding her power but the threat of this man and what he could do and what he could inflict and what we come to realize does happen later in the story when we think about what happens with um, her husband or her lover, and we'll we'll come to it. Is it it gives it puts us much more on edge. I think when you see that parallel with someone like Mugabe or Mugabe himself, and you think, my God, she is playing with fire here, and there's a genuine threat. Yeah, at the beginning of this story as we've been discussing, you know, she seems to be the one with the power. He seems like this kind of frail older man who's wearing some ugly, weird shoes to try to impress his young secretary. But yeah, then it's, then we're reminded that he controls the military. He's the president of a country. And exactly what you're saying with understanding that this could be based on Mugabe and it, it changes the tone. It changes it from a story about maybe you know, seduction and a quest for a woman to rise in social class and social circles to something more 
threatening. So maybe we should move on from this terrifying first intimate encounter to the husband. Uh, You want to? Okay. Yeah, we can. Just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. We wouldn't skip it. Not, not not this gal. I do also feel that anytime that there's any discussion on these in these stories of like dating, romance, relationships, <laughs> or sex, I'm like, this is a universal experience, <laughs> and I can really identify with this character. <laughs> which just I think says something disastrous about me. Which we, let's not look into it. <laughs> we'll just we'll just step on by. I mean, I did underline something at one point and just wrote in all caps, like cat person like yeah. margo i mean it's hard when we're reading all of these stories all the time and all we see is these these continued themes of women and fear and sex and power and how it often turns scary or violent or just bad anyways um but because i'm i'm literally i'm here going yes like cat person like margo but i'm also like like Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, am I on a date with a, like someone it's who's just... kind and nervous or a serial killer? Like, but also it's also not like Margot because this woman is the, like with the, the president of a country. It's yeah. so much bigger. The consequences are so much bigger, but but they zoom in the way Mm -hmm. that the story kind of zooms in on these moments is actually she doesn't give us that um so you get this sense of kind of this you know the place that they're in and that this guy has sort of um done this a lot of times and she zooms in on the details so you kind of you're kind of almost going to forget that he's this powerful president and she talks about this scene in a way that is just like is is human and is about kind of the two people kind of feeling each other out and it's you know there's this one section where she goes uh groom yourself wear a delicate perfume and remember how much it seems to arouse him when you behave as if you are overwhelmed remember (laughs) he is a teacher he'll want to teach you things act as eager to learn as you are to please (laughs) like it's just it's like her inner monologue. You're just, <laughs> here I go. So it's like, have I shaved my legs? Do I smell okay? Okay, I'm just going to like, I'm going to play with this power dynamic. I'm going to let him be the the one in control, the one who can teach me things. I'm going to play the role of kind of overwhelmed, giddy girl. And, you know, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, kind, it's kind of, it's sort of horrible, but it also, I, I, you feel like you can kind of recognize that sense of like, how am I going to play my role in this situation? And how can I, like, what is he going to do? And what, how am I going to react? And this sort of, But it's just done on this kind of, so she talks about these micro details, but you can extrapolate from that. He's the powerful man. He needs to be in charge. I shall be, you know, playing I shall be today I shall be playing the role of um <laughs> should be playing young, the, all the parts overwhelmed um naive innocent girl mm-hmm. like shall I be the Mary or shall I be Magdalene mm-hmm. am I going to be the virgin innocent or am I going to be the kind of knowing sexy uh temptress yeah because she's she's already married and has a child at this point like yeah. she is not a virginal flower but yeah 
playing the part, putting on the mask. And, you know, then towards the end of that scene, she says, all presidents are men, no matter how godlike they seem. As such, they must suffer from the indignities of men. Conceal your surprise that your youthful flesh is enough. Hide the rush of power that gives you. And that was where I was like, like cat person, you know, Margot and cat person is very open about the power she feels over Robert when she sees his reaction to her body. And that's the same thing that's happening here. And it's interesting that language, you know, the rush of power this gives you. So, you know, that she's talked about how powerful he is and, when she realizes that she has this kind of sexual control because a man can't hide, you know, his erection or his orgasm. And she's like, that's it. That makes her feel powerful. It's, it's, it's an interesting kind of moment where the tables turn. Mm -hmm. Jen, I'm so glad we're having another episode where we're going to have to tell our parents, please don't listen to it. And then they're going to listen to it. And then we're not going to talk about it with Hi, them. Hi, mom. Hi, dad. Nope. I'm not. Nope. Mm-mm. <laughs> Mm-mm. Um, okay. So there's the power dynamic between these two. We know they've slept together. Things are happening. And then <laughs> the scariest sentence in the world afterwards Discuss what you're going to do about your husband. And I was like, what do they mean? Dun, dun, dun. I mean, they're both feeling quite powerful. Like, you're right. They've had this sexual encounter. Clearly, it's gone well. They're both feeling kind of maybe a little bit high or giddy. Um, and they're, they want to continue the relationship. So, But it's not like maybe you should divorce your husband, which is maybe what I thought was going to happen. It's literally the next paragraph, approximately six months later, your husband will be transferred or maybe he'll meet with a car accident. There has been talk in the newspapers of a mysterious black dog that appears in front of the cars of ministers who challenge the president. Engines explode, brakes fail. Ooh, political rivals joke about it openly. Be careful, make sure you don't see the black dog. Everyone knows what it means. There's also... The line, which I think is really revealing, which is years later, realize that you never saw or heard from your first husband again. And the reason I'm so interested in it is like, we've heard all of these things where we're guessing that something dire could happen to the husband. We realize that something horrible is happening as these people are just like disappeared um, through the lines that you read. But what is the most chilling, I think, about this is the word realize, realize that you never saw or heard from your husband again. So she is, doesn't, like she doesn't clock or care potentially. Yeah. Like what? This is like, this blew my mind. And this is the point where I was like, hold up. This woman who I thought was kind of, you know, yes, manipulative, like yes, going for, this present, like, yes, kind of wants power, potentially, it's like, oh, wow, she is next level. She has not engaged with this enough to realize, to realize that her husband has been, let's be honest, killed, kidnapped, whatever. Yeah, she does not care. 
She literally says she doesn't care. You don't care much for your spouse, but he is the father of your child. And I mean, then you're like, oh, she isn't just some kind woman who's like, you know, kind of innocently gets caught up in a um, scandal with the president. Mm -mm. As I was falling deep into a rabbit hole, learning about Grace Mugabe, she did in fact have a son um, with her first husband, whose name was Stanley Gorereza. His name was Russell and he was born in 1984 when Grace was 19. Um, And she had, I think, three children in total with Robert Mugabe. So Grace had four children, one with her first husband, just like in this story, and then three with Robert Mugabe. And apparently, this is just one last thing that I learned about her that I thought was fascinating, um, was that the Wikipedia article on her says, Mugabe's reputation for violence and hot temper earned her the nickname of disgrace at home in Zimbabwe. Yikes, but also kind of awesome. Like an awesome nickname, not an awesome thing. Violence, not good. But great wordplay by those Zimbabwean journalists. There's another incident uh, late. So these kind of moments of violence, like pepper the story. And there's another one that I think relates really interestingly to Grace Mugabe. In our story, she sort of gets a sense that he's having affairs with young women as she is kind of dealing with her... Uh, her own aging and she sort of gets the sense that you know he's having um, he's got kind of younger women uh, who he sees and he lies about it to her and she there's this absolutely um, horrible sort of line where she talks about instructing a bodyguard to uh, like half strangle one of these lovers with an electrical cord with a sorry with a telephone cord I think the thing that got me when I was reading about this this story is that Grace Mugabe was um, a, um, accused in South Africa did you hear about this she was accused in South Africa of assaulting a 20 year old South African model with an electrical plug oh. I see, this is what I love about stories like this. <laughs> you know, Anidike has given us this amazingly written story that opens up an entire history that I didn't know that much about. I knew who Grace Mugabe was. Sure, I knew a little bit about Robert Mugabe, but suddenly we're getting to see the inside of this like tormented, horrific world that on that was a microcosm of the violence that Mugabe was putting on the country. Yeah. I just, and, and what part grace was of that, the examination of, of a woman's own penchant for violence and manipulation, you know, and we start to see in the story, we start to see her gaining power after the wedding and Anya like has sentence, then paragraph, then sentence, then paragraph. Like, so you start to see her thinking, you know, um, She says, after the wedding, he will offer you an opportunity to redecorate. Suspect he is proud that he understands women and their petty torments. And she's saying, remain adamant that there are ghosts. So she's redecorating the house. She's kind of laying claim. And she says, "Um, he will be exasperated in the short 
sharp way you will come to learn he has, but soon he'll acquiesce, ordering plans from several renowned architects to build you the palace of your dreams. So now it's coming into light. And then it says, feel relieved, paragraphed. Feel his first wife's tastes were too simple, paragraph. Feel you are the president's wife, paragraph. You should live like one. I mean, she's just ascending to like, (laughs) like villainhood. Yeah. I mean, I deserve this. Yeah. And it's like there's there's um, this idea that she's kind of shedding uh, any sense of kind of humility or shame or naivety. She's just, as you say, she's she's ascending. It's extraordinary. The, the writing there is is very, um, pa- it's just very powerful. It tells us exactly what's happening to her. Oh my gosh. And she talks about how she starts, you know, being seen as the president's wife going out into public. And, you know, if you want anything, someone will be immediately dispatched to go get it. And all you'll have to do is immerse yourself in charity work, open a few orphanages, kiss a few babies and accompany the president's to state events. And then she says, this would be bearable if it wasn't so boring. So you get the sense that she's just, she, she has ascended to this power and, but it's, she's, she's a smart kind of craven person. She's looking for the next thing. I just thought that line was fascinating. She's, she's worked very hard to get to this place. And now she's like, what's next? There, as we get into the story, we start hearing about her own affairs and the president's affairs and that that effect on their relationship. The president tells her the news of her beloved's death over breakfast. Um, the president will fake sympathy for John's family's loss while eating fried eggs. Hear the words car accident. Bite your tongue to keep from qu- crying. Under the table, you'll grasp the knife so hard that your palm will bleed. Stop eating for three days. Something about this reminded me a bit of the scene at the end of Needs, the story that we read in episode one of this season, of what is said and unsaid between two partners at a table, like at a dinner table, at a breakfast table. You know, in Needs, our our narrator is pushing her husband because she herself has killed the main character. In this story, the president is faking sympathy, even though he killed her love affair. I mean, there's something there about the menacing, complicated manipulation that can happen between two people in the quest for power and desire. And the and the setting of that in a very familial um environment both times gives it just heightens it just heightens that sense because it's so out of place um it's like we were talking about with the sex scene it's kind of like you're you know if you're in this sort of intense very human experience then then you layer in that sense of power that sense of manipulation that sense of danger it becomes a lot more 
um, terrifying because you're not expecting to find it in over breakfast or in the bedroom. You know, you're expecting to find it out in the out in the war zones, out in the kind of political sphere, but you don't expect to find it in this domestic setting. Over your eggs. Yeah. And this seems to be the moment that he really goes from being almost her like compatriot and partner to when she starts plotting something bigger. Because she says, plot, colon, your escape, your revenge, your next move. This woman is terrifying. Yeah. And she goes for it. And it's interesting because, again, just to go back to Grace Mugabe, you know, this is where you start to see her um, start to chart her own political um, ascension. So she, in our story, we see how she um, starts to kind of mobilize to become herself a political figure um, and takes on and sort of it becomes a powerful political voice. And very similarly to... Um, what happened with Grace Mugabe, where she also was kind of positioned to be the the sort of heir apparent to her husband. Yeah. And, and so here is where we see the whole story. She has been, she has been presenting herself in this certain way. She has been very tactical and thoughtful in how she presents herself. And this is where her ambition kind of rears its head and we see it falter when she's seen as too ambitious by the public when when she's she gets it seems like a little too big for her boots is what other people seem to think that's where the failed you know political ambitions and failed attempts really start to happen she's no longer just a woman the first lady who is kissing babies and opening orphanages suddenly she's seen as a threat by the public and by the country. So at the end of the story, she has started taking political power. She has started to improve her popularity. She's speaking at political rallies. Her ambition is growing. Um, she, She says, see dawning realization on your enemy's face as they realize how serious you are. So she's going for political, she wants to take over the country. And that falls apart very quickly. And there's actually a sort of a movement, I, um, I mean, there's a line that says, they will claim it is not a coup, but obviously we understand that there is some kind of coup. Um, uh, she says, in truth, your husband will be ousted by the army generals who once enjoyed his favour. They'll convene a meeting with him, tr- treating him with deference, maintaining the illusion that they are negotiating. Um, so there's a huge kind of unrest and essentially, you under, we start, we come to understand that it is because they could not allow you, so we could not allow this woman to kind of ascend into his, into his position. Um, and so she ends up being uh, kind of sent away. It's kind of all goes. It gets, you know, it gets blamed on her. And I just, I love this final paragraph because it leans into all of what we've been hearing about, kind of throughout the story of sort of how she has been using her womanhood to kind of navigate and negotiate kind of her, her own power within the relationship kind of initially, but then much more broadly as a sort of 
as a as a person within the within this country and as a as a political figure. And I just love the fact that the language that is used to take her down is so is also so gendered, and it is it is all about how we can create a different type of narrative about about kind of the dangers of women. Mm. Um, so it says they will invoke witchcraft to explain your influence over him. You lured him. You are a siren. You dashed his legacy on the rocks. You will be Eve and Delilah. You will not just be an African president's wife. You will be every temptress that ever lived. Just anything they can say that basically says women are are the reason like women are damned you were tricked you were lured she's a witch she's a siren I mean the author just throws all of that in and they she can't escape her womanhood and it's her womanhood that gets her this power and it's her womanhood that they'll use to oust her and to send her away Mm mm-hmm Yes. And, you know, this last sentence, this is it. I mean, they will absolve him of responsibility. His sins washed away in history, receding from memory the way waves retreat from the shore. He can stay, they will say, but you must leave. I mean, yeah, it's her, it's the womanhood, the tightrope walk that she is expected to hit. I mean, and I don't think this this author is arguing that Grace Mugabe is a <laughs> is a kind, nice person. No, no, no. She is there is just the saying that both of these people in this story are violent and they are manipulative and they are liars, both the president and the secretary. But in the end, the secretary is the one who is blamed for it all because of her womanhood. And just in the last, you know, at the end of the story, there's some footnotes and it says Erica Sugo Anyadike is particularly interested in complex representations of African women, rejecting simplistic portrayals of them in binary terms. She's often inspired by real life stories to create content that draws from events and issues that intrigue her. I just, I love, I, it's so good. I just, I love this, this author just opened up this entire new line of thinking and world and asks us to look deeper into history and learn more. I, I love it. And that complexity, that complexity around how this African woman is presented, you know, the, the direct relationship that we have with her, the insight that we get into her, we understand her vulnerabilities and her frailties. We see her falling in love. We understand that she has a child. We see her, being greedy we see her being malicious we see her being manipulative we see her being violent but we see her being bored and we see her being like disgusted and we see her being not wanting to age and you you know just understanding that that the author is looking to put forward a three-dimensional complicated portrayal of of african and womanhood and seeing all of that come to life in this story was extraordinary and doing that by placing us in the middle by putting us in a, a, a second person narrative is so smart because you know 
it just it means you can really align with that experience even though you know it's such a different character from such a different place um than than me i i loved it i love this story the universality the complicated portrayal of of this woman the connection to a history and a very polarizing person in history asking us to interrogate our own understanding of politics and relationships. And it's just so well-written. I mean, <laughs> it's so it's good. So well-written. Yeah. It's so good. Well, thanks for reading with me, Jen. Thanks for reading with me, Lizzie. Next week, we're reading It Ends With a Kiss by Riddhi Datsadar. You can find it on adastories.org or at shortsthepodcast.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen.